going to pick up in 2 Samuel 8, right where she left off. I actually just asked Terry to do the liturgy for that part because I didn't want to read through all the names. Now we're throwing things. All right. So 2 Samuel 8, we're going to pick up in this series as we've been working our way through the kings and the prophets, the rise and eventual fall of Israel as God establishes his people in the world thousands of years ago, we get to think through how he did it and what he did. As we do that, we get to learn about being God's people in the world today. And so as we do that today, I want to just kind of start with that idea. Now, communion is also today. If you haven't gotten to communion elements, uh, we will give you a chance for that. Uh, I know John and Jan are here. And so right as we get ready for communion after the message, we'll give you an opportunity for that. But King David is now in his role as king over Israel, right? Saul, the poor leader, the bad king has been displaced, and here we are, right? And David is the one that God has chosen. So um, he's been restoring God's people. He's brought worship back into the community, made it primary, and we pick up with that. Yes, there's been some battles and some things that we just heard, but as God is settling David and the people of God into who they are and where they are and what they do, we get to kind of set ourselves in this world with some of those same, th same things. Who are we in Christ? What in Christ are we called to do and, and how are we called to live in Christ? I'll give you a starting idea. Living as Christ in the world. Christians have a responsibility to live as Jesus instructed us to live and do what we're created to do. We get to bring the world a taste of eternity today think we have that slide maybe anyhow uh, we get to give others a taste of heaven today right not all of it right we can't have all of what we anticipate what we long for but as we become the people that Christ has created us to be as we live in that way we get to share a foretaste of that we get to share a piece of what eternity will be like with others will you pray and we will get started Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. As we look at 2 Samuel 8, uh, the rest of it, and 9 today, I pray that you would help us to connect those points between us as human beings today, God's people today in the world, and those thousands of years ago who lived and lived in faith and were called to be your people in that world. Help us to tie those connections together and understand those in our context today. Thank you, Jesus, for living in this world and pointing us towards God, for showing us how we live. Help us to be those people today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel 8, we're going to pick up in verse 15. It says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So again, last week, David restores worship. He brings the Ark of the Covenant home into Jerusalem, it wasn't without incident, right? As they try and kind of do it the way they thought was right, but it's not how God called them to, they learn some lessons. They learn that, okay, God has given us kind of some pres prescribed ways to do things that bring honor to him. I mean, we don't just go just do things any old way we want to, but we do them the way God has called us to do them. And so in the same way, we live in the way that God has called us to live. And so as David restores worship to the community of Israel, and he's fighting these battles. They're establishing their ground, their territory, their borders. They're building up and fortifying their nation. Then we see this next line that David, he brings justice and equity. It says, David administered justice and equity to all his people. So justice and equity. 
Justice is defined as applying the law equally to all people. Equity is defined as the fair and partial treatment of all people. Right? So treating all people the same. Right? Modern day setting. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white. Doesn't matter what you are, who you are. Being treated fairly under the law and being, being treated equitably or fairly by other people. Right? So David bringing justice and equity to Israel is about having all of Israel be treated equally under their law and in their community. These are words we hear all the time in the news today and, and on social media today. And I, what I want us to do is disconnect from the political ideas about justice and equity just for a minute, take a simple definition, equal treatment under the law, we hear that all the time, but just we know what that means, and equity, being treated the same by all people. Let's look at this from a biblical perspective. Let's, let's ask, how does David administer justice and equity to people? Not, how does this political party propose to do that or this political party? Let's set those aside for a minute and just open our hearts up to what would God call us as Christ's to do. Verse 16, it says, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahud, was the recorder, and Zadak, the son of Ahitub, and Emelech, the son of Abiathar, the priest, and Sariah was a secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, this is payback for making fun of Terry having to read all those names, I guess, <laughs> was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. And so it's another reminder that the primary thing in Israel, the primary thing that David has been doing is establishing worship as a foundation. If we're going to talk about justice, if we're going to talk about equity, we first must have our hearts right with God. Right, Our condition with God, our place with God, our relationship with God is the very thing that will establish justice and equity. Right? And, and just again, back to culture today, you'll never legislate equity. Right? You can never make laws enough to get people to treat other people in any certain way. You can't, you can't legislate justice or equity. People must have justice and equity. And for us... We will never treat people that we disagree with or don't like or whatever it might be, we will never treat them appropriately until we find ourselves in Christ, until we find ourselves in God and how God has treated us, how Jesus has treated us. That will level the playing field for us. In fact, we will see that and talk about that in communion today. So David is building worship and he is promoting action based out of worship. So 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David begins to ask. So it must be a day where they're not at battle, a day where he's around home, thinking through, maybe praying or whatever he's doing. What is God calling us to do? What is God calling us as a nation to be what is God calling me, just simple David, not king, but just David? What is he calling me to do, right? However we get there, David arrives at this moment where he asks this question. Is there anyone still left from Saul's house, right? Saul, and if you're unfamiliar, if, you're, if you just got here today and you're unfamiliar with this story, the king prior to David was Saul. Now, a lot of times, a king would hand off to his son, and, and, and that would be very amiable and things would go well, but this is not that. The prior king was a failed king, a man named Saul, 
whom David had served faithfully, but Saul in his jealousy began to pursue and wanted to kill him. And so as he chases David around, trying to kill David, David responds in a godly way. There's opportunity for him to kill Saul. He doesn't do it. He says, nope, that's who God put in charge. I'm going to let God deal with that. Right? So think modern political parties, right? One vote goes this way, and then maybe the next vote goes this way, right? And then no matter which team you're on, it seems like, you know, then the kind of the whoever loses and whoever wins puts down the other side. Well, David isn't doing that. Saul did that. Saul wanted to kill him. But David is trying to honor God in his life and trying to honor God in his nation. And so he sets aside who do I disagree with or what did he do while he was in power. And rather than asking any of those questions, what would God have me do? So is there anyone left in Saul's house, he says, that I may show kindness? So is there anyone left that is Saul's family that I can show kindness to? So I can ignore the fact that Saul wanted to kill me and that some of his family wanted to kill me. In fact, just before this, the kind of propped up king for just a few years in between Saul and David was Saul's son and fought against David in battle. But David is saying, listen, it doesn't matter where we were yesterday. It doesn't matter who was for me or against me. What is God calling me to do? Verse 2. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And, king, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So David is asking this question. This isn't a question where like he's sitting here and I'm like, hey, so anybody know anybody? And he's like, yeah, I got somebody. Okay, cool. It's over with, right? This is something David is going through and he's asking like, who's left from this family? And they're like, well, I think we, I know somebody who used to serve Saul's family. Let's get him and ask him. So he calls him in. David is going out of his way to answer this question. This isn't like God said, okay, let's see if you can be kind to somebody who was Saul's. And David just asked his three buddies, like, hey, do we, do we know anybody? And everybody's like, nope, nope, nope. He's like, cool, I'm off the hook, right? He is pursuing this question. Who's left from this family that I can show kindness to? And he says this, that I may show the kindness of God to him. See, David doesn't just want to be a good guy, a nice guy, a kind man. David is trying to be a godly man. David is attempting to be the man that God wants him to be, and he's doing so out of who God is to him. I'll put this, I think we have these, I'll put this on the screen. So sharing what God gives us. Rather than placing justice and equity in modern political terms, David reminds us that this is about exhibiting to others how God has treated us in Christ. You see, when Saul was chasing David, God protected him. When David goes out to battle, it isn't about David's might, though he is mighty. It isn't about his 600 amazingly trained warriors, although they're fantastic. It's about God giving him victory. And at every turn, David knows this is about God. And so God, David knows that he woke up this morning, and that's because God gave him breath, right? He knows that he is king because God said so, not because of him. And so he knows it's God's kindness towards him that has placed him in the place that he is today. And so he just wants to, as we often say today, pay that forward, right? He just wants to show that same goodness, that same kindness to other people. 
And it's easy to show goodness and kindness to people you like, people you agree with. Jesus says something to the effect that, well, even wicked people do that. But he wants to show goodness and kindness to people that have not always been on his team. A family that has persecuted. Yes, he had a close friend, Jonathan, in that family. But for the most part, this family has been against him. And so David is asking the question, are there any of this family? I want to show God's kindness to them. Verse 4, and the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, here's this Mephibosheth. And if you remember, uh, it was two, three weeks ago. In 2 Samuel 4, as we were reading through, there was this one, this one little paragraph, a couple sentences in between what David was doing and these two kind of hired thug guys that are going to go in and they end up killing Saul's son. In the middle of that is this one, this one little note that there's this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, when Saul and Jonathan were reported that they had died in battle, the woman caring for him had grabbed him and started running, they fell and however it worked out, crippled him in both his feet. And so he's been unable to walk since that time. And so here he is, he comes before David, and he bows down now to King David. Now place yourself in Mephibosheth's place, and you're thinking, maybe, because every other king has always been like this, David is going to kill me for being in that wrong family, that wrong political party, right? He's going to take out his vengeance on me. David's obviously not going to do that. So here's a note for you, effort towards equity. David seeks out relatives of his former adversary to show kindness to. How would our national dialogue change if we sought out others in this way, right? What about the people we disagree with? What about the national conversation right now? Pick your topic, whether polit politics in general or the racial tensions, or the, the, the police violence, or whatever topic to mask or not to mask. Whatever, right? Whatever topic it is. Vaccines, it just we're so highly divided right now. What if, out of God's kindness to us, we were motivated to go out of our way to show kindness, equity, justice to other people? It's not what I hear today. It's not what I hear in the church today. Throughout coronavirus in the church, and this is again not the atheist down the street who doesn't live by the same set of rules that we do, but in the church. Well, I have a right to do this. Why? And you may, maybe you do. What if we just laid down our rights for a minute and began to think of other people? That's what David is doing. He has all the rights in the world as king. He's been placed in a place of amazing authority and power and wealth and influence. Israel is on the rise to being the most prominent and dominant empire or nation in, in this world, in the world they live in. During his reign, they will become the greatest power in this part of the world. But instead of taking that and using it for himself and saying, listen, I can, so I will, he begins to ask the question, is there anybody left from this family that I can show God's kindness to? That I can go out of my way and seek out and show them God's love just like God has shown me that love? How would it be different if you and I, if the church today, acted that way? 
Verse 6, the second half of it says, David said, Mephibosheth, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that saw your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So the cultural setting, do not fear. When a king took over an adversary's position, whether that be conquering their nation or this family is displaced and another family takes power, there was always this sense of fear. I'm going to die for the family that I'm a part of. Modern day, like, I'm going to be persecuted for the political position because our team just lost and now this team is now in power, right? But what about, like, who pays for, right? I want to, who pays for this kindness that David is showing him? Who pays for this equity? this actually cost? Here's what David is saying. David is restoring all that was Saul's. Now, if you imagine, a fairly corrupt king was quite wealthy, right? Saul was in power, and he was doing quite well. Now, yeah, he lost some battles, and I don't know his actual estimated worth, but he was king, so we can assume it was decent. And what happens is, as David assumes the throne, David kind of inherits all of that. But instead of keeping that and making it about him and taking what is rightfully his because he's now in charge, he begins to ask the question, are there anybody from this family left? And I want to show them the kindness of God. I want to show them kindness because Jonathan, one of those family members, showed me kindness. I want to do that. And so he finds Mephibosheth and he restores everything that was Saul's to Mephibosheth. Now just take that moment for a minute and just consider a man who's been crippled since he was young probably has no capacity to ever become that wealthy, back then at least, right? Today, we've got a lot of other opportunities that, that maybe, well, that definitely they didn't have then. But this guy, this was his lot. This is who he was going to be. And not to mention that, now he's a part of the family that's been displaced. But David says, come bring it. I'm going to I'm going to give you everything. He says, I will restore to you all the land, Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I'm going to give to you all that was Saul's. It's mine now. I'm going to give it to you. And more than that, you will always eat at my table. You will never be without. You will sit with me. Verse 8, and he paid homage to him and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Oh my, like I have nothing, to, I'm a dead dog, I have nothing to give you, I have nothing to contribute to this agreement here. Like you're giving all this stuff to me, I've got nothing, I can contribute nothing. See, David isn't making a business arrangement where he's going to do this because the reward is in his benefit, right? There's no tax break for David, right? He's doing this because it's what God has led him to do. It's what God has called him to do. It's because of who he is. It's the right thing to do. And Mephibosheth, being on the outs because of his family and being marginalized because of his physical condition, could never overcome things on his own. So David seeks him out and restores to him the fortune of that family. And he says, who am I that you should do this for me? What a humble response. How different from the dialogue in modern times today about equity. Verse 9, and then the king called Ziba, and then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
David inherits all this. David takes it on, and David gives it away. David gives it back to Mephibosheth, gives it back to the family. Mephibosheth said, there's, there's nothing I can do here. He responds in humility. He didn't say, well, it's about time. I deserved it, right? It wasn't my fault. This all was my dad. I'm a victim here. Instead, he responds in humility, and David blesses him in generosity. Verse 10, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that is your master's grandson that he may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth said, your master's, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And so David sets him up, right? David puts him in a place, uh, a, a very, very wealthy and comfortable place. So the character of Christ, and I think we'll put this on the screen. Jesus calls for, yeah, we have it, good. Jesus calls for generosity over selfishness and humility over entitlement. Christians, in want or in plenty, are to exhibit Christ-like character in all things. It doesn't matter who you are in the story. It doesn't matter if you're David or if you're Mephibosheth. It doesn't matter who you are in the story. They're both showing the right character. Mephibosheth's not acting as a victim. He's not acting entitled. And David isn't lording his power and wealth over him. In fact, David is showing the character of Christ in his generosity, in giving away what was rightly his. And Mephibosheth is taking it in humility, knowing he needs it and welcoming it. And they're overcoming here this, this familial divide or this modern-day political divide that has separated these two groups. And David is restoring to him all that belonged in that family. Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He eats at the king's table like he was one of his sons. He eats there as if he is family. He's not just given something and then sent away like, okay, I did my duty. I set him up. Now it's on him. But he does all that, but then he welcomes him in his family. How over the top does David go for this? To show justice, to show equity, Right? Because, let's be honest, Mephibosheth has nothing to do with the battle between Saul and David. In fact, Saul's son even lied and kind of covered or, or gave up his father to David because it was the right thing to do. There have been characters throughout time. When I say characters, I mean living, real people, historical figures that throughout this story have done the right thing, that have overcome the cultural norms and who have lived with godliness, David has been one of them, and he's not perfect. We've seen him fail too. We're about to see him fail epically. He's not the hero of the story. We say this every week. Jesus is the hero of the story, not David. But we've seen David overcome what was culturally acceptable, but still wrong. We've seen Jonathan overcome what was culturally accepted, but still wrong. We saw, over, we saw Abigail do the same thing over her husband, who was an absolute jerk, and had what was coming, but she prevented it anyways. We've seen people overcome what is culturally accepted but wrong and do the right thing at their own cost. That's where the church needs to be today. Overcoming what is culturally acceptable but still wrong and doing so at our own cost. You see, the gospel message fits right in here. 
right? What was completely acceptable after God created humanity was to expect that humanity be grateful and do what God said. As God loved humanity and provided everything for them, gave them everything they needed, humanity, as you and I know, still sinned against God. We then come along thousands of years later, we kind of enter into our lives and we add to the sin. Deserving penalty, deserving punishment, deserving hell, and yet God loves us. He violates what could be okay in love he pursues us. But he doesn't just stop and say, hey, listen, I'm willing to just forget all about all that. But he can't, because that's not justice. Who pays for that then? But instead, God says this, I will give my son, right? God will become flesh. Jesus, creator, God, the word of God, who is in the beginning, through whom all things are created, Jesus becomes flesh. But he doesn't come and become king like this. He's born into a humble, broke family who spends the first couple of years of their life on the run as the rulers are trying to kill all those kids because they believe that he's coming as another kind of king. But instead, after all that plays out, he, he lives a life of humility in flesh. He then is betrayed and turned over and beaten and crucified and dies. He gives his life. Jesus gives his life for us that we can be reconciled to God. He pays the penalty we deserve that would be right if we paid, but he pays it. Because in God's generosity and love and grace and mercy, though someone has to pay, it doesn't have to be us. And so God gave, in these most famous words of Scripture, so God loves the world and gives his only son. That whoever believes in him should have everlasting life, right? That, that whoever would come to faith in Jesus, that their sins will be overlooked, that their, that their penalty will be washed away, not because it's not just, but because justice has already been paid by Jesus. It cost God for you and I to sit here. It cost him his son. It cost Jesus everything for us to do, as Yvette said, to lift our hands in worship and, and come and, and slow our hearts down and just be in this moment and expect to receive. She said something to that effect, that we can show up here and expect God will meet us here. Not hope, not pray, not dream that maybe one day God will, but expect that every time God will meet us. We know that because he gave his only son for us. Justice is meted out on Christ. Equity. We all come here sinful, regardless of wealth or poverty, regardless of color or age, or gender, or anything else that would separate us today. Anything else that the two parties in power today would tell you divides us. Apart from all of that, we show up at the cross with our hands out, like Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth saying, I have nothing to contribute to this. All I bring is my junk. I just bring my sin, and my shame, and my pain. And God says, it's okay, I've got you covered. I'm going to restore to you all that Adam had. I'm going to restore to you the goodness that I created humanity to have. I'm going to do it out of my cost. David will then come along so long later. He's not the first one to do this. He's just imitating God. He finds Mephibosheth, who has nothing to contribute. And David says, I'll pay everything. I'll give you everything you need. And you'll never leave my table. My table's your table, your family now. 
if you are in Christ today, your family. This family lasts forever. Your family. And the person paying for you to be family is God himself. The gospel is Jesus coming to reconcile us to God, paying the penalty for us. In his death, our sins are forgiven. And in his resurrection, we get new life and family. And we are seated at the table as sons and daughters of God. Verse 12, it says, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and, he, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The reminder, he has nothing to give. He has nothing to contribute. But he's treated as a son. In Hebrews, long after this, 1,500, 2,000 years later, the author of Hebrews will write this. And what more shall I say? For a time would, fall, would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. As we were working our way through Isaiah, what, uh, we finished it right as COVID was kind of beginning. And so uh, two years ago to about a year ish ago. One of the repeated themes in Isaiah, some 40, 50 times it is said, is justice, equity. The failure of the people, God's people in that day, was injustice and inequity. It's something that sounds like a political football today because that's how it's used. People throw those words around and talk about how the other team is wrong. And then they just kind of punt it back over here and it's become a political conversation, but it's not. It's a biblical conversation. Yes, the way that people, political parties use it today is political. But justice and equity are at the heart of who God calls us to be. That we are to be just. That we are to be equitable. That we are to treat all people the same way, no matter who they are. And that goes both ways. No matter which team you're on. And we do so not because the other person, the other team, the other political party, the other royal family deserves it. We do so because that's what God did for us. When we were undeserving, when we deserved penalty, when we deserved hell, when we deserved death, God overlooked that and pursued us. Make no mistake, if you're here today, you weren't chasing after Jesus. He was chasing after you. He pursues us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Scripture says. He pursues us. He does so at his own cost. So we live in response to Jesus by treating others with equity, with love, with favor, and we do it at our cost. Last Tuesday morning, the men, uh, we have a small men's group that meets, and we were in Luke 10. And it tells the parable the prodigals, uh, of the uh, Good Samaritan. Right? We're all familiar with this story. This religious leader, an attorney, goes to Jesus and he says, listen, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers a lawyer with, what's in the law? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, yes, that's it. And so the attorney, being like any good attorney, tries to figure out, okay, now who exactly is my neighbor? Is it like next door? 
Is that across the street? Caddy corner? Does he count? Because they're weird, right? That's his question. Like, well, who, who's, who's my neighbor? Like, how far do I have to take this? So Jesus says, well, so a, a guy was traveling down a road, and he's jumped by robbers and beaten and left on the side of the road for dead. And a priest goes by, and he goes around him. And then a Levite, who's the tribe of the priests, right? He goes by, and he crosses over, and he goes around him too. He says, but a Samaritan, now, cultural note, that's the people Jews hated. Okay. But a Samaritan, seeing this guy beat up, left for dead, goes by, and he cares for him. And he binds up his wounds, he cares for him. And then, he didn't just stop there. I think, that's, I think if that story had parked there, I'd have been, man, the same story. But he doesn't, doesn't stop there. And then he picks this guy up, and he puts him on his own donkey or horse or whatever they're riding down the street, he puts him on his own animal, and he walks, and then they take him to an inn, and he puts him in an inn, he continues to care for him, and when he has to take off, he tells the innkeeper, he says, listen, you keep taking care of him, and anything, and then any charge, I'm coming back, I'll pay for whatever it costs. Then Jesus looks at this guy, and he says, now who was a neighbor to this man? Our cost. Our we go out of our way. We do so not because we're earning anything. It's because that's how we've been treated. Because Jesus paid for us at his cost. Because God gave his only son to reconcile us to him. And so all we get to do is show little responses to that by going out of our way to love other people. People we disagree with. People that have nothing to contribute people that other people overlook, and we do it at our cost. Let's pray. Jesus, as we gather today, we do so because you paid for us. We are bought with a price, as Romans, that we who have nothing to contribute, as Paul also says, but filthy rags, you have treated us as brothers and sisters in the gospel, that you have made us God's children that you, God, love us as sons and daughters, not as crippled people from another family. And you welcome us to your table, and you say, you sit with me forever because you're my son, you're my daughter. And you don't expect anything from us because we have nothing to contribute. In fact, you paid everything for us. Help us to be those people living in a nation today that is so antithetical to that, Forgive us as a church, Christians, on both sides of a political conversation, who follow the culture, do what cult is culturally accepted, what is considered normal, and the way we mistreat other people, whether that be an ethnic group, law enforcement, one who believes in this or doesn't believe in that, one who gets a mask or gets a vaccine or one who doesn't. Let us remember that at the foot of the cross, we're all crippled. We're all incapable of helping. But you, Jesus, in your perfect life, gave yourself for us. God, you looked down on the suffering of your son and said, it's okay, it's worth it because I want this church right here in Cerritos thousands of years from now. I want them to know how to treat other people and I want them at my table. Help us to live that way, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. If you didn't receive communion on your way in,
Uh, would you just slip your hand up and either John or Jenna will bring it to you. There's a couple over here. Jesus, as he is headed towards the cross, it says on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It says in the same way he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So I want you to picture this today. As Jesus sits at a table with his disciples, just like David sat at a table with Mephibosheth and welcomed him into the family and said, here, listen, I give you everything my sacrifice give to you. That's what Jesus said. He says, here's the cost of putting Jeff at the table. Here's the cost of putting all of us at the table forever because it's costly. And Jesus says, here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. So every time we take communion, we always think of sin and forgiveness. But today, I want to think about the cost given. I want to think about our response to communion as we take this bread, as we take this cup, what we're saying is, okay, I've received something I could have never deserved, never paid for, never had. And now I'm going to go be Jesus in my neighborhood and I'm going to give this away. And again, who's our neighbor? Whoever God places in our path. At my cost, at my inconvenience, I'm going to go be Jesus to the world around me. We, as a family here at Generations Church, are going to live differently because Jesus paid such a price for us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we get this, this little wafer out, we remember that your body was broken, that you suffered literally, physically. You took that beating, that scourging and the crucifixion of which we can't even imagine the pain and the cost. You did that so that we could sit here today in our own comfort with our air conditioning and our coffee and hear these words of our faith. Let us leave here uncomfortable because of the discomfort and pain and suffering you took for us. Let us want to be more. You bless this bread and I ask that you would bless it today. You said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Church, will you take the bread? You said, this cup is a covenant, a promise, a guarantee, an obligation. In my blood, you said, for the forgiveness of your sins. blessed the cup and you invited us into redemption will you bless this cup today church will you take the cup may we sit at your table every day God and may we pay the price 
whether it's inconvenience or cost or whatever it might be, no matter how irregular, no matter how, how countercultural, may we bring others to your table because that's how we got to your table. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.